The child welfare system exists to keep children safe. What happens when better safe than sorry becomes more sorry than safe? Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. We believe that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. This is part three of the More Sorry Than Safe episodes with Melissa Bright. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes, please go back and catch up before continuing. We also want to warn you again that there may be segments of this episode that are triggering and difficult to manage. Remember to breathe and take your time if you need to. We sure had to. While there are certainly people in this story who made clearly unethical decisions, most of the cogs that made this happen were just doing their job. That is a theme that we have found in these abuse of power stories. Everyone was just doing their job or following their supervisor's directions. But it is on all of us who have any touch in the world of child welfare to not just do our job, but to make sure we're not becoming part of anything that is hurting more than protecting. If we can all learn that lesson through this story, I think it is a win and worth having this sweet mama tell her story to more strangers. Join us as we continue with Melissa now. After the kids are removed, you're in shock. And then tell me what happens next. I know you have a friend who kind of helps you get over this initial hump. Gosh, that night was I didn't sleep at all. My whole focus at this point, you, you just shift gears. You're like, okay, it is what it is. I I literally cannot stop and think about it. I have to focus on the fight because if I stop and think about it, I would get so nauseated. Um, A friend of mine who had been walking me through this, she had an experience different, but still the same from a child abuse pediatrician. I would say her situation was worse hospital wise and allegation wise and not as bad CPS wise. I'm so thankful to have had somebody who had walked through this prior to me. And um, she called me the next morning. It was like... (laughs) 530 in the morning, like next morning, a few hours later. And I mean, we were just like on the phone crying. We didn't, we didn't know what to do, nothing. And she said, you absolutely need our attorney. They had an experience where they had one attorney who would not push and fight. First one was like a chihuahua. I guess, in the courtroom, it would not push for her parental rights. And they wasted a ton of money on this attorney. And finally, they went out and hired Dennis Slate, which is who we used as well. And I would not have gotten in to see Dennis Slate if it weren't for my friend. We had called around that day. Dennis was preparing for some trial. He was in court all day. I called and again, you know how everything just falls in place, all the little pieces. And his wife picks up. I have no idea who she is from this person or that. She said that she could just hear from my voice that it was no bueno. And so she told her husband, you have got to see these people. And she said, hey, my husband's in court all day. 
could you come by the office at 6.30 p.m.? I said, I don't care what time it is. We have nothing else to do. I'll be there. We were able to get in that night at like 6.30 or 7 p.m. And we had retained him thanks to my in-laws because we didn't have a retainer lying around. We're not, we're not those people. Who does, especially when you have young children. And up to this point, there were several medical things we had to pay out of pocket for. Like our insurance was in a network with, with Texas Children's. And so we had to pay almost $1,000 for my daughter to have an x-ray that she didn't need. Every time we went to the hospital, we had a copay we had to pay. You know what I'm saying? Like it's in downtown Houston. And it was like literally $25, I think, every night to just park. Wait a minute. They required you to have an x-ray of your daughter to prove whether there were fractures or not. And you had to pay for that? Stop it. This happens a lot, Jack. They just told me it had to be done. And I was like in this overly compliant mode. And so I brought her into Texas Children's. I didn't know I could say, hey, they're out of network. Let me go to a different place. But in hindsight... And this is like the point where you have to pay for it all up front. And we did not, we did not have fantastic insurance. We were small business owners. We were just starting out. Like we were not like in this creme de la creme insurance plan. I mean, so we had already had a front, a lot of cost. When you're at Texas Children's, they only provide food for the patient who's breastfed. <laughs> so every meal we had to eat out, every everything, like enormous expenses already. And they're like, oh, hey, by the way, now you have an attorney and they need a retainer. And I'm like, what, what in the world? Really? Like we're a middle class, normal family, don't make a whole bunch of money. But, you know, we get by and we mostly comfortably. We don't have to, you know, you know what I'm saying? We're normal people. Praise the Lord for my in-laws. And they were able to pay the retainer for our attorney. We met with him on Thursday. Then my kids were moved on a Wednesday. We met with him on a Thursday. And on a Friday, we retained him. And he was already pushing CPS to get our kids out of foster care. So my kids had been in foster care for now 48 hours. It was on Friday that we found out that they weren't even in the same foster home. Which is horrific, like especially with their ages. You know, if it were like five kids, all different ages, even three kids, big time different ages. Okay, but a two-year-old and a baby? Especially like they had other options. They could have taken the foster home that right. they, they could have worked for the benefit of my children and did not. You guys had one lined up. If they had gone with that one, then you could have had at least some communication with them right. to meet the needs of your child or to prevent some things that happened. Because my only source of contact at this point, and because we retained a lawyer, I couldn't even contact him, was my caseworker with CPS. If we had gone through the Loving Houston Foster Adoption Agency, I would have been assigned a caseworker through Loving Houston. So I could have said stuff like, hey, my daughter has a dairy allergy. So um, a week and a half, I guess, from that day, he had a procedure down at Texas Children's to get all of his stitches removed. And because of his age, they had to sedate him to take the stitches out. So it was like, you know, he had to go under general anesthesia. They didn't have my insurance card. They had nothing. You know, like I could have at least contacted the social worker who worked for Loving Houston and gotten that information, appropriate information to a foster care parent. If you have other options available, foster care should be the last option, unless it's the best option. Like there are times where you could give them to grandma, but it's a no-go. But they had viable options that they could have chosen for my kids that were in better interest than what they chose for them. So tell us about that. So what happened after 48 hours? 
Um, our attorney, he is exactly what my friend said. He is a bulldog. He will fight for your kids like they're his own dang kids. And like, if you can't be that bulldog, he will. He went to work for us and about 5 p.m. on Friday, we get a call from him stating that he was able to go up the chain through DFPS and get kinship placement back at my aunt and uncle's, which should have happened back in August. Due to whatever was going on, my kids would not be delivered to my aunt and uncle until like Saturday afternoon. That was good news, right? Our kids were leaving foster care. Um, The next day was horrible. We we started the day again, like hopeful. We showed up at my aunt and uncle's house. We were so thankful. We thought it was going to be like that placement that was before where they were staying at my aunt and uncle's. And even though we couldn't spend the night, we could spend the day with them as long as we were in their presence, you know? Well, That was not the case. My caseworker shows up about 5 p.m. to my aunt and uncle's house. I'm telling you, I was giddy. I was so giddy. I was so thankful to hug my kids. I walk out to that car. Dylan goes to one side. I go to the other side. And I open the door. And I, I can't even tell you what I saw. It was like a shell of a child. She was there. She looked like herself. But I mean, she didn't smile at me. She like barely recognized. She was yellowed. I don't know how else to describe it. Like she was just like she hadn't slept in three days. Uh, like despondent? Yeah, she was just completely distant, if that makes any sense whatsoever. My bubbly kid was severely sleep deprived. That was like the only way you could describe it. Somebody who's just like staring off into space. My two-year-old, my happy two-year-old who has no injuries, no nothing. I take her out of the car and she looks at me and she has a giant black eye. I was fuming. I whipped it around and I looked at the caseworker and I was like, what the hell happened to my kid? And he said, oh, we have a report for that. I'm like, what? What happened to my kid? Why wasn't I notified? I still have parental rights over her. I think that I should justly know if my kid has a black eye or not. Apparently, she fell out of a bed. And I was like, because she's two and sleeps in a crib. Why was she in a bed? Who was she in a bed with? Like, what, what are you doing? I was livid. Jack and I were talking about this earlier. Like, the irony that your kids were removed because your son fell out of a chair your daughter fell out of a bed and we have a report on that. We're not held to the same standard that you're held to. Exactly. We have a report on that is what he said to me. I took my daughter out of the car. I packed an entire suitcase. I packed my entire kid's lives into the suitcase, right? Because I thought that they were going to the same foster home, you know, silly me. My daughter is wearing clothes that don't belong to her. Fine. She's clothed, but it is a dress. I'm gonna have to send you a picture. It's a dress. It's on inside out and backwards. Oh my gosh. I'm like, did did you make her dress herself? Like, what is going on? Fuming. And if that's not bad enough, my son was hoarse. I I mean, he obviously had been crying so much that when he cried, he didn't make a sound. He couldn't make a sound anymore. He couldn't audibly cry. He just visually cried. Is that a thing? Well, that's what he did. And I'm like, they were they were gone from our care for 72 hours. Like, what the heck happened? Who, Who was in charge of these kids? A big thing with Mason, especially after his first drain before the shunt, the shunt was helped a little bit. They kept him at an incline to have gravity help um, with his drainage. And when he would cry and have all that pressure built up, it would put pressure on his brain. And so I'm like, does somebody tend to him? Like, what's going on? Um, We were at the house for about 30 minutes and we were trying to record it all. We didn't record their homecoming, which we should have. We recorded it once we got back inside. So we asked, you know, thinking our healthy, happy kids were being returned. We get inside and 
The caseworker says, I will be right back. He walks out to his car and he comes back in and he says, my supervisor said that you and Dylan are not allowed to stay here. You can only see your children at the CPS office or under direct supervision of a CPS caseworker. So we had seen our kids for about 30 minutes and then he forced us to leave. And we saw our kids for one hour over the next 14 days. That's horrific. But also, I don't understand why Dylan couldn't see the kids, because if you were the alleged perpetrator, I was the only one listed. When they finally sent our discharge paperwork, I was the only one listed. If Dylan was a non-offending parent, then why couldn't he have unlimited access to your kids? So first off, they try to loop you together as the parent, not parents. Dylan has his own parental rights and I have my own parental rights. However, they try to loop you in one, which is oftentimes why they suggest you get two attorneys because they have to prove the case twice against me and against Dylan because he has his own set of rights. But essentially their justification was we can't determine if this happened on the day you say it happened or if it happened before while he was in Dylan's care. Wow. Wasn't he like screaming when the EMTs got there? Yeah. The thing is, is at any point CPS can access those 911 calls, right? Oh, I guess they can. I don't know if they can or not. He was screaming the entire time I was on the phone. The only time he didn't scream was when he went unconscious for about 30 or 45 seconds and you could hear me screaming. You would think hearing your kid scream that bad was bad. When your kid stops screaming that bad is even worse. So when he finally started screaming that bad again, it was almost relief because he came back to, I'm like, at any point they could have accessed any of that. The timeline was so short. So just before I took my kids inside, my neighbor from down the street, she has um, a little girl that is Charlotte's age. They're literally a month, not even a month apart, a couple weeks apart in age. She lived about six or seven houses down from us, was driving to pick up her H-E-B curbside order. And she stopped in front of our driveway. And we must have talked in front of the driveway together for five or six minutes. And we were just catching up on life, blah, blah, blah. She sat there and saw my kids playing in the sprinkler. And saw the well-being of my son and my daughter. And, you know, we just caught up on life. You know, we went back and looked through everything. From the time she left my driveway to the time she got to H-E-B and typed in her little code to state I'm here, according to the timestamp, that's the same time I called 911. So from my driveway to the moment she got to H-E-B was the same amount of time that it took all of those other things to transpire. And so CPS has a very firm, narrow timeline. And all of a sudden, it could be Dylan. And it would have been so good for the kids to have at least one parent to be there is like some stability. Yeah. And that's an argument that my attorney made. They were like, hey, Melissa is the only listed alleged perpetrator. You could have shown up that day to their house and given Melissa notice to leave. And she would have. If it meant her kids not going through that. She would have left. And you could have, you guys could have fought that fight a totally different way. 100%. It could have actually been in the advocacy of my children. Later to find out why all of this happened, because, you know, there's a hundred different things that could have happened or done differently. After we got into court and we could subpoena documents, this, that, and the other, we realized that the day that the accident happened was July 18th. CPS has, per their policy and protocols, 60 days to either complete an investigation 
and rule no findings or to rule findings or undetermined and send it off to either legal or family-based services. They have 60 days to do that. If they need an extension, they have to go not to their supervisor, but to the program director who's above the supervisor and get like written approval that they can continue this investigation up to 90 days. They have to have reason, just reason to delay it beyond 60 days. Well, September 18th, the day that he texted me is exactly 60 days from when they removed my kids. They forgot about our kids. They did not do anything with them. They didn't move them to family-based services like they originally said. And so now here they are, day 60, the caseworker and the supervisor either have to go to their program director and have just cause to prolong the investigation. And they can't do that because they, they've left it for 30 days. So they don't have just cause. Or they have to close it out. The day that my kids were removed, September the 19th, they went to court that morning around noon and they got an emergency removal for our kids. It was signed by a judge at 1220 in the afternoon. First off, um, we should have had notification that an emergency case was being heard. We couldn't have stopped it, but we could have had at least enough time to show up. You know, they just had to notify us of it. They did not. Um, secondly, they got approval to come for they claimed immediate danger, imminent danger. Imminent danger is what they claimed to the court. And at 12.20 p.m., they didn't show up to our house till 7.30 p.m. If my kids were in as much danger as they claimed that my kids were in, why did they leave them in our home for seven hours and 10 minutes? After 30 days. After 30 days of not seeing them or however many you said it was early, 25 days. If they thought that my kids were going to be shaken at any moment and could die, why, why did they wait seven hours? All that to say they did not follow their policy and procedures correctly and did not want to get in trouble for it. That's pretty much what it boiled down to. From the time of removal to the time of a show cause hearing where the state has to bring forth enough evidence to meet the burden of proof as to why they're bringing the suit, right? All they have to do is present enough proof stating why this case should happen. That's it. And the burden of proof for a case like this is um, literally a person of ordinary prudence and caution. That's it. The burden of proof is so, so low. Well, from the time of removal to the time they have the show cost hearing, they have to do it within 14 days by law. And of course, ours was exactly 14 days later. You know, couldn't, couldn't have sped that along at all. And we were fortunate to have our attorney ready at that time. My mom is a previous court reporter. And so she typed up every single bit of recording we had on file. I mean, not like publishable depositions or whatever of our audio recordings of our different family team meeting and night of removal. But we had all of that in writing so that way they could use it in court. I mean, I'm telling you, I spent hours and hours and hours and hours compiling every bit of medical information I could. I went to the pediatrician and got every single bit of document from every single visit either one of my kids had. We go to the court and normally a show cause hearing is like between one and three hours, depending on the case. Ours was three days. So the state of Texas had three days to prove that they had enough information, a person of ordinary prudence and caution to take these children and they could not prove it. Um, we did not defend ourselves. Um, we did not have to defend ourselves. We called for a directive verdict. The judge agreed and our children were um, returned to us. 
immediately. So um, that was our case. We tried to resolve all of this in mediation. In mediation, CPS and the attorney representing them were in one room. We were in another room with our attorney and we laid out everything. We gave them every bit of information we possibly could. And against the advice of their attorney, they proceeded to move forward with the termination of our parental rights. I saw that. And that was very, very interesting to me. And Jack and I actually were asking each other if their attorney might actually be on your side based on some of the things that happened during your show cause hearing, like the way he asked the investigator to plead the fifth. What had happened was is our attorney stood up and asked our, I don't know what objection, da 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 I don't know any other legal terms, stood up and asked the judge to Mirandize him while he was on the stand. After our case, he did not stay with the city much longer. I don't know why I didn't ask. All I know is he reached out to me maybe a year or so after our case. He reached out to me and he said, you know, I apologize for everything that went down. He said I was doing my job and my job is to represent, you know, the Department of Family Protective Services. He's like, I didn't feel good about it. But it wasn't my job to feel good about it or not. It was my job to represent. It was very kind, very professional. And it was a personal thing on Facebook. And since then, he has become a very good friend. He works in the area to fight for parents. I think there was a friend that I had met through all of this who had something similar going on. And we had passed a bill in the Texas State Senate and House. And it was a right to a second opinion. Essentially, the bill states that if you have a child abuse pediatrician stating it's abuse and another doctor who has a specialty in whatever field stating it's not abuse, Texas Department of Family Protective Services needs to reach out with both cases to the Texas Medical Board. They can't choose which diagnosis to listen to over the other. It's not blood work. It doesn't come back. Yes, you have cancer. No, you don't have. It's not cut and dry. It is based on statistics. At best, it's a social science. You know, it's based on a whole bunch of different things. And at the end of the day, it comes down to a likelihood or probability of, right? And I'm not saying that that isn't necessary or needed, but it isn't 100% abuse, 0% not abuse. That's not, it's not cut and dry like that. We had this attorney that was representing the Department of Family Protective Services during our case, the prosecution, helped out this family and used this new bill to help them end up keeping their kids because... They had one opinion stating it is this, and they had child abuse pediatricians stating it's abuse. And so he was able to to, to rightfully advocate for this family. And he, he's done it time and time and time and time again. I, I mean, I don't want to say that our case had to happen to shift him, but I really do think that it hit him hard and truly made him question what it is he's doing and why. And he's a good guy. In listening to him talk and in hearing your attorney discuss him, it sounded like he was kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. And it seemed like he was able to identify pretty quickly that this was not what CPS was claiming it was. What was said in that other podcast was that he went to the department and tried to get them to drop the case. And when they wouldn't, he had to proceed. Obviously, that's what lawyers do. It's your job to represent your client, not your opinion. We were both talking about how interesting it was that he did go to the department and ask, let them know and advise them that they might want to drop it and kind, kind of seemed like he was advocating for that. But you remember way back when, when we were at the hospital and they said legal had no grounds to proceed with this case, like way back when. And the facts haven't changed at this point. Why would he have enough information to proceed now all of a sudden? And isn't it true that at that point, 
what had changed was that your lawyer had brought him information saying, you know, you don't have a case. And at that point, they had more information such as additional medical information. Yeah, our attorney went to him and said, hey, not only do you not have a case, we also have a case against you. We're going to file sanctions against you if you proceed with this case because of X, Y, Z. Not like a threat, but no, if you are going to proceed based on these merits, then we're going to proceed based on these merits because this is what happened. I don't think, you know, the department feels like anybody has any jurisdiction over them for the most part. I think they feel like they can do pretty much whatever they want. And so that probably didn't feel like a threat. I probably shouldn't say things like that, though. So my mom is a bus driver, right? And if she says, oh, I did that for the safety of the children, you don't have a comeback. So when one of these caseworkers says, oh, I did it for the advocacy of these children, you don't have a comeback. You're just like, you're right. Yes, the advocacy of the children. Nobody questions it. They they interviewed me for eight hours, eight hours. They didn't call my husband up there once. He didn't have to testify, be interrogated on anything, just me for on and off for eight hours. I bet that was hard. Yes. Yes. It was hard. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying at this point, I was so pissed that I'm like, what else do you have for me? Hmm? What it was the phrase from gone with the wind. My give a damn busted. Yes, it was hard, but it was also kind of therapeutic at this point. You probably also felt so powerless during this whole process. And like your voice was taken away from you because people weren't listening to you and weren't believing you that being up on the stand and being questioned under oath probably felt refreshing because you finally were given a voice. Yeah, you're probably right. A pretty good take on that, Jack. Who knew this would be a therapy appointment? That might be why we do this, because we probably need a lot of therapy. (laughs) Um, There are some things that we've kind of glossed over that, you know, like the investigator and some things that he said that may have not been true. Tell us about how his interrogation went. I feel like they were very coached um, at the beginning, right? He understood every single question that the prosecutor asked him. But when the, when my attorneys, the defense asked him anything, he like had no idea what the answer could be. You know, it, it could have been yes or no. And he said, um, I'm not sure. He gave no, no direct responses, it felt like. And then he couldn't look us in the eye. Um, so that was, you know, pleasant. I felt almost bad for him. The way that CPS works is a hierarchy and he was just the good soldier and they were completely content letting everything fall upon him. And it was not entirely his fault. He just did as he was told. And sure, there are a whole bunch of things that I dislike about him that he did wrong. But by and large, he was the one that everybody else used as a scapegoat. So I almost felt bad for him on the stand. However... Not too bad. A lot of what we're seeing with this abuse of power, isn't there like a Martin Luther King quote about the way that evil proceeds is when good people do nothing or something like that, right? All of these situations where we're looking at with abuse of power, there's so many people involved that didn't necessarily do something evil. They're just doing their job. They're just doing what they're told. But because they didn't look at a situation and say, this is what's right, And this is what's wrong. And I'm not going to stand here and be part of something that is mistreating someone, destroying someone. But y'all, he lied too. 
He wasn't just a good guy who stood by and did nothing. He lied to. I'm not saying that. I'm certainly not saying that. I There was a lot that he did wrong and he needed to step up and, and discuss and talk about and learn from and grow from and et cetera, et cetera. Like it was not, he was not good. So during the show cause hearing, I mean, everybody was there. I'm talking about, well, I don't know the hierarchy program, the program director, the program administrator, even the regional so-and-so from CPS. There was like a whole group of them all present for our show cause three days show cause hearing. Hardly anybody hires attorneys. I don't know, like twice a year. So that's why. And you got like that good one. You got that fancy one. Him And we had another attorney. We hired an attorney for my husband because, you know, he has his own parental rights, not just me. Her name's Stephanie Prophet. And either one of them, I would have just handed my kids over. I'm like, here, I mean, like, entrust them with my my life. All of those people showed up for the three days of show cause hearing. But when it came to sanctions, where CPS was on the defense and we were you know, filing suit against them. The only one present was the caseworker and his dad. Nobody else was present. It was just him. And at the end, at the end, and I'm not saying this is makes me forgive him for anything, but he came up and he shook my husband's hand and he said, I truly apologize for everything that has happened. I'm not proud of his actions, but there's a difference between somebody making a mistake and learning from it and somebody just making a mistake, right? You have compassion for one and not the other. So in hindsight, how I feel about him or his testimony or whatever, circling all the way back from our tangent, you're welcome. He, he was just like super evasive. He couldn't answer anything direct and we were getting nowhere. And he was on that stand for forever as answering a hundred million questions. He would not point to his supervisor as somebody who gave him the authority to do this or that. He certainly wouldn't point to his program director for giving him any direction or authority to come into our home and take our kids. He was completely fine falling on his own sword. And it got to the point where there is a process at CPS where when you go to a home visit or you have a phone call or any co- uh, any communication with a parent that you have to go in and put in like this entry. You'll like write a few brief sentences on what the phone call was about or what the next steps are or what had happened this day or whatever. And you keep an ongoing list of all communication through the case. So anybody could come in and kind of catch up on the case. And he probably has, what, 14 cases going on. He needs to know the differences between them, right? We got, I guess, the metadata from... From that, the last entry he had made was on August the 24th, and that entry indicated, hey, we are no longer voluntary complying with this plan. You are no longer serving in the best interest of our child. And on September the 19th, the day he went in to go get custody of our kids, 30 minutes before he was before a judge, the metadata shows him going in and changing something. What? We don't know, but something on that date. So he ended up altering government documents to, I guess, best benefit his case to show that something had shifted from the last time he sent the information to legal. I don't I don't know. Um, We don't know who directed him to do so because he would not state and falling on his own sword. And that is when the judge Mirandized him. And on the stand, he pled the fifth, I don't know how many times, maybe three or four different times because he didn't want to incriminate himself for altering these records, even though we have proof. There were two different ones that were altered, that one and another another date. The date where he said that he told us that we could move to my aunt's house. He altered that date um, and notes from that date and the notes from the 24th of August on September 19th. Why? He pled the fifth. I assume he had to be able to either show his program director that something had changed, which justified a need to go to court 
to bring it back to legal because legal already said there was no case or, you know, something to show the judge to say, hey, this shifted. I don't know. People who show that they in their character, that they have the ability to be dishonest for their own benefit over the best interest of children should no longer be employed in child welfare. That's what I'm saying. They should find another place for him to work. This is not the only time that he was dishonest about your case. It's like when he went to court and he told your husband's court appointed lawyer that your husband didn't even know he had, that your husband was notified about court and your husband didn't even know there was court and that your husband wouldn't be appearing that day. And that was the second thing he pled the fifth on is he perjured himself. When he was asked a question in the show cause hearing, it differed from what he stated in the emergency removal. And you're right. I I forgot about that. When I heard him, he was on the podcast and I heard him talking and I am not saying that I'm like this intelligent person because I flub up all the time. Like I am a moron. But it was called Texas Department of Children and Regulatory Services when I took it. And it was in 2002. Okay, this was a long time ago. One of the first things they teach you on the job is never talk to the media, ever. Never, ever talk to the media. So when he got on the phone with the guy, he's like, oh, I am still employed here. I don't know if I should. And I was thinking, oh, my gosh, someone needs to send you somewhere else. That was the number one thing over everything that happened on everything was the fact that there is no humility at all. And because there is no humility and they cannot accept faults of any kind, they have to keep them employed. I'm like, seriously? What children does that advocate for? No, that's that's not good for children. These are the wrong people. So anyway, back to the court hearing. Three days of testimony. At the end of the hearing, it sounds like your attorney is like, okay, we've, this is enough. We judge, we want you to just give us your answer. I was holding my husband's hand so hard that his, his wedding ring was imprinted into my fingers. Oh my gosh. They talked for a long time, (laughs) like between the attorneys and the judge, they were saying a lot of things and I have no idea what half of it meant. And I remember whatever he said at the end, I had to look at Dylan and he had to go up and down like, yes, we have the kids back for me to even understand what was going on. Like I was just I was there physically, but I was not there mentally. So I have no idea what he said at the end. But essentially it was like, hey, you're right. You didn't meet the burden of proof. These kids are going home. I wrote down the quote. Can I read it? Because I think what the judge said was really cool. And I think to be a judge, you have to just be like a walking soundbite. I thought he said what I was feeling and maybe what you guys were feeling too, but maybe not. Can I just tell you guys what he said? I would really appreciate that. Thank you. Because sounds like you were there, but maybe not there. I'm mentally here today. So maybe I'll, I'll take something from it. Okay. Um, he said, it is not possible to look at the facts and imagine that the agency actually felt that there was any urgent need for protection of these children. The court finds the agency's efforts unreasonable. And then the court removed the agency um, as managing conservator of the kids. The court ordered the kids back into your care. I have chill bumps. I wish I had, I wish I had taken that the first time. I just thought the quote was, <laughs> well, thank you. Well, I just, you know, I'm kind of glad you didn't because I got to tell you. He's wonderful. (laughs) I was like, wow, what a cool judge. Like I was moved by the quote. There were some other sound bites where he was saying, I have seen the department do some 
wonderful heroic things for children. I've seen the department save lives. And today you have something like you've ruined lives or something. I have also gotten to know him a lot um, since, you know, obviously once everything was legally done, not, not before then or anything, I didn't know him prior to it. I don't want people to think like, Oh, I had a touch in my pocket. Nope, 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 nope. Everything was done legally 100%. But after way after, especially when we were going through NBC and doing everything with the podcast, I got to know him a little bit personally and he truly loves kids. I, I don't know how else to say it. Like he is fair. He is graceful especially to kids who may have had a hard track or made a bad decision. Tough love. The thing is, is he invests much of his respect into CPS that when they did something like this, I felt like it hurt him. I don't know how else to describe it. Like it hurt him that somebody he respected, an agency he respected, that he has seen do so much good for kids would do something like this. Yeah. And I think he had said something about how if all of the evidence, like the other medical records had been presented at the removal hearing, that the kids never would have been removed. That was at the end of our sanctions hearing. I was I was mentally present for that one. Yeah. You know, a lot going on. He definitely said things that you don't normally hear judges go so far to say. It seemed like he was really invested in the well-being of everything. So after you get the kids back, that is when you move towards the sanctions hearing, right? Yes. Um, in order to sanction the government, because CPS is so close to home, you know, you can't just sue them because they made you feel bad or they put you through trauma or any of these things. You know, they don't want everybody and their mom being able to sue. You have to be able to prove in order to sanction the Department of Family and Protective Services, you have to be able to prove that they acted in bad faith. And then they go on to describe what bad faith means. And if you can prove, prove, not just he said, she said, but actually prove that they acted in bad faith, you can sanction the agency. And we had proof. Like There, there are numerous families, especially my family who walked me through all of this and got us in touch with Dennis. And anyway, he's been an angel since. Their case was horrible. Horrible, horrible, horrible. They got their kids back. They still did not have the sufficient proof to prove acts of bad faith. So there are so many cases that go through that are just awful. What has been done to them was awful. It should have never gotten that far. However, the agency did not act in bad faith. So even though the situation was bad, even though the trauma was bad, even though their family suffered, they can't sue the governmental agency. So I just don't want people to sit out there thinking like, oh, how do I how do I sue the government? No, no, no. It's not it's not that easy. You don't just get to if you want to. Because it's a civil court, because it's a government agency, taxpayer funded, we don't even get to sue them for punitive damages. We only got to have financial reimbursement of the costs that occurred to us. I just feel like people need to know we didn't get to walk away with anything, but we were very fortunate that CPS was liable for our legal bills because they um, were one hundred and twenty seven thousand dollars. We would have had to mortgage that over 30 years. <laughs> like if we could live in it, that's an R. That's like a driving RV. You know what I'm saying? Like people have a house on wheels that cost that much. And again, we're just a middle class family. It's not like we have it lying around somewhere. So what we got in total back is our legal fees. Um, my husband and I had to continue paying for childcare, even though they could not utilize their childcare. Even once they went back to my aunt and uncles, they were not they were not 
able to use. So we got reimbursement for that and then reimbursement for Charlotte's unnecessary x-rays. That being said, at the end of it all, my husband and I, I think it came out to like twenty-five dollars or $26,000 we still owed. CPS can't give it up and they chose to appeal our trial and the appeal went on for about nine months. We had to hire appellate attorneys and at the end of it all, my husband and I still owed like 20 something thousand dollars. We were again fortunate that my in-laws and my mother were able to pay our retainers and so we only had to pay back family but it took my husband and I about three years to pay the rest of our CPS debt off we had to attend our medical debt first that's a lot of money and like you still paid it back really fast that's a lot life changes happen and we no longer live um, in our home and we were able to use some of the profits from our home to pay it back so we were very thankful for that but it wasn't like we just you know happen to have an extra bit of money lying out. But that victory, I'm sure, was helpful after all that. I feel like it really taught my husband and I the value of money because at the end of the day, it sucked. But we had a healthy child. Our family was together under one roof. We would pay it off the rest of our days if we had to. I'm thankful we don't. (laughs) I'm so thankful we don't. But we would have, you know. Can you tell us how your kids are now? Oh, my gosh. Rambunctious, wild, and they're eating me out of house and home. I'm just kidding. Wonderful. And I am thankful for them. And um, it's just summertime over here. And you're just trying to do everything you can to keep them entertained all day. Charlotte is seven. Um, She turned seven this summer and we are going to uh, do a year of homeschooling. We want to do it full time, like forever, but we'll, we'll see. And so she's doing cheer. She wanted to do cheer this year and Mason will be going into kindergarten. He's five and he is doing T-ball and um, we added on a third kid. She was a sweet addition. She was um, a, a happy spot and a for, after a pretty hard season. So we're very thankful for her. She's three. And, you know, outside of the potty training woes I was talking about earlier, um, just feisty as ever, uh, sassy. And yeah, so the, we're, we're doing really well. and. You, you sit back and you think about all the things that are quote unquote wrong that you need to work on. Everything is age appropriate. You know what I'm saying? Mason is developmentally there. He doesn't use a shunt anymore. Healthy, happy. I can't complain. I shouldn't complain. Are you fired up yet over the story? We'll keep that fire going at least one more week with us as we continue on in part four next week. Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.